Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Let us pray before we look at the word here. Father God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the greatness of who you are. And pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, uh, things too marvelous for our eyes to peer upon, Lord, things incomprehensible. I pray that you would instill within us a sense of awe, a sense of the sublime, a sense of something greater. Lord, may we worship that which we know in truth, but the one who we will never fully comprehend. For your name's sake, amen. And so in the prayer, there's a little bit of a hint to what we'll be talking about today, along with the outline in your uh, handout. I want to start off with a story. You know, my first recollection of an event that I got to do with my future father-in-law was skydiving. So, you know, he was 52 at a time, which was quite an impression on me for a 52-year-old to go skydiving. Uh, And I remember sitting, because, you know, it was tandem, so I didn't have to worry about pulling the cord or anything like that. Or altitude. All I had to do is sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Well, as we're sitting there watching the film and they're telling us about skydiving and, and what we would expect, they tell us uh, that it's likely that we won't remember anything at all, which was interesting to me. I thought that's a pretty steep price to not remember anything, but okay. Uh, and they said, What happens? The phenomenon is this. You're experiencing so many things at the same time that you have no context for, for whatever that you kind of black out. You go into sensory overload. And, and you can't, you know, the recalling of events has to do usually with association of familiar events. Well, in skydiving, there are none. Uh, and so I do remember, you know, going up in the plane to 12,000 foot and, you know, the deep anxiety that you get, you know, and... and and, and no one says a word on the way up. I'll just tell you that right now. Everybody just kind of looks at each other, and the look on their face is a thousand words. So there's no need to communicate. Uh, and then I recall, before I jumped out, what they do, because they know if you talk, you're going to try to convince them that you don't want to go. And that just gets awkward with the payment at the end. So, uh, so they don't say anything or allude to when it's coming. All of a sudden... That door swings open, rush of wind, and they're yelling at you. Put your feet on the mark. Put your feet on the mark. You're like, oh, okay. And then they push you out. So, uh, Pretty crazy. And, you know, I couldn't explain to you in words the feeling as we were doing rolls out of that plant. I wouldn't even know how to explain it. I mean, and if you talk to someone who skydived, they'll be like, yeah, it was awesome. And you're like, really? Tell me more. It was just awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and, and that's about all I can tell you about it. I know it seems like that story crashed, but the point was actually uh, explained there. You see, the sublime refers to a greatness beyond all possibility of calculation or measurement or imitation. That's what the sublime is. You know, George Mallory, some of you might have heard of George Mallory. Uh, he's the first one to have ascended uh, Mount Everest, they think. Uh, On his third attempt, many people died. I think it might have been 12 uh, had died who was with him. And a reporter came to him and said, why? I mean, some people were a little bit outraged. No one had attempted such a thing before. And now with deaths, they ask the obvious question, why did you want to climb Mount Everest? 
And he said the three most famous words in mountaineering. Because it's there. Well, on, on the 8th of June, 1924, on their fourth expedition, the coll- their colleague, Noel O'Dell, was moving up behind Mallory and his partner, Andrew Sandy Irvine, in a support role. At around 26,000 foot, he spotted the two climbing a prominent rock step. And Odell later reported, I want you to hear his report, at 1250, just after I had emerged from a state of jubilation at finding the first definite fossils on Everest, there was a sudden clearing of the atmosphere. And the entire summit ridge and final peak of Everest were unveiled. My eyes became fixed on one tiny black spot silhouetted on a small snow crest beneath a rock step in the ridge. The black spot moved. Another black spot became apparent and moved up the snow to join the other on the crest. The first then approached the great rock step and shortly emerged at the top. The second did likewise. Then the whole fascinating vision vanished, enveloped in cloud once more. The men were never seen again. What would have driven men to such extremes, to a certain impending death? There are few who have the words to explain what drove them. Two of them are Englishmen from the 17th century. These two Englishmen decided to traverse the Alps, the Swiss Alps. And um, it's interesting, in their writings, they both speak about the horrors and harmony of the experience. Uh, I think they put Mallory's explanation of because it's there to words that can help us to understand what the sublime is. Uh, John Dennis was the first to publish his comments in a journal later in 1693. Uh, And he gave an account contrary to his former Uh, feelings, which he said, uh, the beauty of nature is a delight that is consistent with reason. That does sound like a man who's not been in it much. Uh, Later, having been in the wilderness, uh, he said the the experience of the journey was at once a pleasure to the eye as music to the ear, but mingled with horrors and sometimes almost with despair. For those who have been in the wilderness, you're like, yes, that accords more with the truth of what the wilderness is like. Uh, Joseph Addison followed shortly after, and in 1699, he commented that the Alps filled the mind with an agreeable kind of horror. Addison went on to develop a concept of the sublime from his experiences in the Alps, and he said the sublime consists of three pleasures of the imagination, and he identified them as greatness, uncommonness, and beauty. Edmund Burke, a philosopher, and I'm just, this is the last one, so stick with me here. Edmund Burke, a philosopher, took what they had done with their writings in the Alps, and he expounded on it more from a philosophical standpoint. And he said concerning the phenomenon of the sublime, the imagination is moved to awe and instilled with a degree of horror by what is dark, uncertain, and confused. The sublime may inspire horror, but one receives pleasures in knowing that they do not fully comprehend what they have perceived. He also comments on the physiological effects, uh, the the dual emotional emotional quality of both fear and attraction simultaneously, like a moth to the flame, ever compelled towards it, and yet from the heat of it, pushed away simultaneously. That place is the place of the sublime. 
Edmund Burke also went on to write that the experience of the sublime involves a self-forgetfulness where personal fear is replaced by a sense of awe when confronted with that which is unfathomable. Our culture, as with all cultures, have sought the sublime in many forms, whether it be the adventure forms of skydiving or uh, whether it be going into the wilderness, sport, travel, sex, drugs, consumerism, vicariously through all forms of entertainment. It seems humans long for that place of both terror and that which seems incomprehensible to them. Most of the things that you're gaining in the culture are cheap knockoffs of that which is real, obviously. And I guess by these examples, I'm probably a little bit of an expert on the topic. Uh, I think I've pursued most of these uh, in Solomon-like fashion with great vigilance and, and with all of them uh, with great uh, zeal and eventually disappointment. Uh, they fail to deliver as they would promise. Um, it is interesting, just something relative to today, that most of the philosophical work on the sublime had to do with technology. The great promise of infinite possibilities and wondering, longing, and striving for more, but not without its own kind of impending horror. A terror that seems to plummet us all the more into the abyss of the unknown. Well, as Christians, sometimes it's our tendency to dismiss such things, to not think that they're important. And it's easy for us to really present a gospel that uh, is bereft of awe, that takes out the inspiring things that captivate our imagination and inspire us to great sacrifice. Sometimes it seems that we trade this life for the mundane and safe things of God to following Jesus meek and mild. Everybody sigh. Uh, right, Pierce, I saw you sigh, yes. Pierce even rolled his eyes a little bit. That's good, Pierce. I'm glad you're listening. Um, and I can tell you there are many youth, Pierce is one of them, who's expressed this perception to me, and I know many fathers to whom their children have expressed the same. I don't think most of you think this way, but it is possible that unwittingly, we have come to reflect a God who is unsatisfyingly prohibitive, predictable, comprehensible, safe, and devoid of all awe. That is a possibility. I went to my favorite concert this past weekend and saw Chris Thiele and the Punch Brothers, uh, which is a great band, by the way. Uh, and a lot of their songs are religiously charged with deep existential meaning, and it really highlights the ambiguities of life. I couldn't help but notice one line in one of the more profound songs that they sang. And it was interesting because the lights changed, everything got silent, and he actually sang it twice with great dramatic pause so that no one could miss it. And this is what he sang, and I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. We long to worship something more than what we know. Let me say that again. We long to worship something more than what we know. I mean, after all, how can life with the living God of the universe be safe? And how could it dull you to all reality? Shouldn't God wake us up to life? 
Wake us up to the desires of our heart, the desire to exist in that place that's definitely not safe, but that we're drawn to all the more. What are really living? It's an important question, guys. What are really living? What of ascending the abyss with George Mallory, even at the cost of life, simply because it's there? What of the sublime, the terror it brings, the unfathomable delight that makes it worth risking of life? What of the mystery that beckons you to lay hold of it and so moves you that you won't let go, you can't let go, because your very life depends on you hanging on to it? Life, after all, is more than death, isn't it? More than not death? Life's more than just becoming comfortably numb in the world. And for those who noticed Pink Floyd, yes, it was a reference. For those that didn't, don't worry about it. Here's my questions for today before we look at our text. God made us for the sublime, which is to say he made us for himself. So how do we experience him in such a way that the imagination is moved to awe and instilled with a degree of horror, and I'm quoting, by what is dark, uncertain, and confused? A horror that at once gives way to pleasure in knowing that we do not fully comprehend what we have perceived. As Thiele saying, we do long to worship something more than what we know. In fact, I would say, if we only worship what we know, and whatever we're worshiping equals what we know, it's an idol, and it certainly isn't God. Well, we're going to look at Mark today, and Mark is an interesting case. And the first place we're going to look, and in your outline, this becomes the body one for the ones that are following along. We're going to look at Mark 4, 21 to 25. This is an important passage for where we're heading, and it's important because Mark kind of gives us some rules, some uh, hermeneutical guideposts. That's a terrible choice of phrasing, but uh, some interpretive guideposts of how we're supposed to read his gospel and what he's doing. Um, and so I'm going to look first at Mark 4, 21 through 25. And this is a clue to how you should be interpreting Mark, and it, it falls in the midst of Jesus' parable discourse. So I want you to follow along, 4, 21 through 25. And Jesus was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Now listen closely here. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care that what you listen to, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he, shall, what he has shall be taken away from him. So in its context, it's a continuation of Jesus' answer about teaching in parables. And it's intended to address how we're to hear and understand the word as Mark is presenting it, and I specify Mark for this reason because uh, if you compare Mark to the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, you'll find that there's a very interesting difference, a difference that corresponds to the way that they wrote their gospel. Uh, so in Matthew and Luke, they draw a contrast between a present concealment 
and a future revelation, which they always make the point to explain the revelation. So they bring to light what was concealed. In Mark, and I want you to hear it in Matthew and Luke real quick. Listen, just listen to the differences. Matthew says, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And Luke likewise, for nothing is hidden that will not become evident nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So you see there's a contrast. Something is hidden, but it's going to be revealed. Listen to the differences in Mark. And, and his gospel follows this difference all the way through. He's actually showing the intentionality of hiding. So hiding is a strategy for Mark. Listen to this. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. In hiding it, so it is revealed. Nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. So there's an intentionality to hiding and making something secret because what it does is it draws you in to the mystery. Any great teacher knows this. Create interest and you will gain some learners. Well, this is what Mark does. And for the Jews in the first century, this is a very common form of educating, right? That's why Jesus spoke in parables. That wasn't uncommon. That was all too common. Something hidden that you had to search for, that you had to look for, that drew you in to a mystery. And in drawing you in, it comes to be revealed. Well, this is Mark's strategy. And it actually promotes revelation. And so we have to understand when we're reading Mark's gospel, he's intending to hide things so that we will look hard and understand. It's interesting, even those verses I read to you, does the lamp come? Is the lamp brought? That's actually not what that verse says. The verse actually says, it's original language, does the lamp come? And of course, our translators are like, well, that's weird. They must have messed up there. We'll change that to a different verb in a different passive voice than what it is because clearly they messed up. Well, they didn't mess up. Jesus was talking about himself. Does the lamp come to be hidden? No, it doesn't. The lamp, who is the light of the world, who is Jesus, doesn't come to be hidden. Which is also why they give the urgent exhortation to listen carefully. Pay careful attention to what you hear. Because if you measure generously interpreting the word, still more rewards follow. But here's the warning. If all you do is pay attention to the surface, if you just pay attention to what you think you already know, you'll lose what even you have. Impoverishment is what will come. And I'd say this. This impoverishment might very well be from a loss of the sublime, from the mystery of God and who he is, the mystery of God in Christ that draws us all the closer to peer within the veil, to peer upon the abyss that both terrifies us and delights us, that which we'll never comprehend, that which is too great, sometimes even for words. But if we choose to casually, neglectfully stay on the surface, the place where you got a real handle on the word, that's a dangerous place. I'd say we never have a real handle on the world. We're always striving to see deeper into God's word, to understand the great mysteries of old. But if we don't, even what we have will be lost. It'll be lost to the world of I already got that. Wow. You already got God and the mysteries of God? That's amazing. My guess is it's a knockoff God. 
Rowan Williams, he's an extraordinary New Testament scholar. He champions this context and the approach of Mark. And I want you to listen to his words because I think he really captures this. He says this, Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus holds back from revealing who he is because it seems he cannot believe that there are words that will tell the truth about him in the mouths of others. What human words could tell of a man who is fully God? Let's just get real for a moment. We can say that like we get it, but if we stop, start to reflect, that is the most unfathomable mystery that you could ever imagine. What will be said of him is bound to be untrue, that he is a master of all circumstances, that he can heal where he wills, that he is the expectant, triumphant deliverer, the anointed. Listen to this quote. There's a kind of truth which, when it is said, becomes untrue. How in such a world could there be a language in which it could truly be said who Jesus is? Devon, I love it when you nod. It makes me feel so good. An old saint who goes, ah, yes, of course, the incomprehensibility of Jesus. Good for you. You know, the Jews of old wouldn't say the name Yahweh. They wouldn't say it because that was to make it common. And that was to make it like you knew what you said, the covenant name of God. And while they might know something truly, they never knew comprehensively. And so that was a word you didn't say. And it wasn't even written. It's funny, I've thought of that oftentimes, of making God and his names common and the danger that exists there. And as I'm driving back from uh, Dallas into Lubbock, I see all these billboards. One of them, ironically enough, said Yahweh across it. I was like, that's funny. The covenant name that was not to made common was made into a billboard. And I'm sure the ones who did it thought they were doing great things for God. Have we made the things of God common? Have we made them all together comprehensible? And in so doing, have they lost the import of what it is when we say God? The magnificence of it. That which is attractive and draws us as a moth to the flame all the more. Well... Mark is speaking in these terms. And Mark, it's interesting, in his gospel, he actually speaks more humanly of Jesus than any other gospel writer. But I think simultaneously, he draws out the incomprehensibility of Christ more than anybody else too. So uh, without further ado, let's look at our text for today. Now, this will be uh, Mark 6, 45. And ironically enough, and I think it's ironic and I think it's hilarious, that if I told you I'm going to do a sermon on Jesus walking on the water, I mean, just be honest. How, how would you feel about like that? Oh, yeah, Jesus walking on the water. You know, that's a real common one, right? Right? They're out in the middle, and Jesus walks on the water. And, you know, because we're, you know, scientifically minded, you know, only God could walk on water because, you see, this is the natural world, and he's manipulating it for the supernatural, which, by the way, no Jew would have thought of ever or anyone in the first century. So we've got to be careful putting that on the text because I don't know that it belongs for one uh, so which is funny because it almost calls it that's how I used to think I'm just going to be honest and I got called to account like yeah that's not the story at all Jason have you even read it because that ain't really how it goes matter of fact if you read this story it's completely confusing and it's funny because we have these filters that go 
You start reading about the water, and you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. We'll just cut that out, and I'll just keep going. Oh, that doesn't make sense either. Oh, well, well, here's what it is then. The moral of this story is, you see, Jesus was coming to him so that he could teach him to call to him so that he could come. Y'all have heard that explanation of this one probably before? It's the most common one out there. You'll see the story doesn't fit with that interpretation at all, not even close. As a matter of fact, if that was the interpretation, someone really messed this story up real, real bad. Okay? So let's take a look at this story. Uh, and, and I know I was shocked by it, and I'm like, wow, the story I thought I knew everything about that I knew absolutely nothing about. Nothing. So let's take a look. I'm going to give commentary as we go, uh, and it will be pertinent eventually. So just bear with me, okay? Uh, Mark 6, 45. Immediately, which, by the way, does connect this to the feeding of the 5,000, and he intends it to, and that actually does matter. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. So I want you to get the picture, all right? And by the way, this is a weird part that Mark adds because he's trying to connect two stories because he's actually trying to communicate a theological truth. It's not a modern history, folks. It's a historiography true event that Mark is trying to communicate important theological truths through. So he's connecting it to the feeding of the 5,000, and that's what this is about. So the picture is this. Immediately after the 5,000 were fed, he sent them off into a boat, and then Jesus is dismissing them, and, and he makes leave of all the people that were there. And after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now reread that, and we're like, oh, okay, he left for the mountain to pray. Have you ever climbed a mountain before? That's not a casual walk through the prairie. I'll just tell you that right now. Uh, that's quite an ordeal. And, and the reason they went to the mountain is because the mountain, which I think it's funny that these people who have traversed great mountain ranges are the ones that came back with the sins of the sublime. The mountain is where God revealed himself throughout the Old Testament, right? This is the terrible place, the place of the sublime where God comes down and meets with people. And so Jesus goes here, and for the attentive listener, who was a Jew of that time, once it said he went to the mountain to pray, they would have cued in immediately, this is going to be a theophany or an epiphany story. This is going to be a story about God revealing himself. That's why you would go to the mountain. Of course, God doesn't reveal himself on the mountain in this story, which should be a question mark there. Oh, interesting. But when they heard he went to the mountain, they would have thought, theophany, epiphany story, God's going to reveal himself in an amazing way, which he does, actually. Um, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. So here's the story being said, all right? The boat's in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. Now, so here's Jesus. Seeing them straining at the oars. Okay, now, with the mountain, this was going to be an epiphany story, okay? A story of God revealing himself, but something comes into the story that's curious. You ready? Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. This four is an important thing. Because now it becomes a rescue story. And if you're a really attentive listener, people didn't preach through pericopes. They just read the whole book. It would have put you back to Mark 4, 41. Where, remember this story, ready? Jesus is in the boat sleeping, and there's a contrary wind that's going crazy, and the disciples are terrified. This actually starts all of these miracle stories. And this is the last one. So I'll just tell you, it's referring back to that one because an important question was asked. Ready? Jesus is in the boat Crazy winds and storms, they're terrified. They're like, Jesus, Jesus, how can you be sleeping? We're going to die out here. And do you remember what Jesus did? 
he rebuked the wind and the storm, and they stopped. And then here becomes the phrase that's fixing to get answered. The disciples were in terror, and they, they asked this important question that begins these miracle stories. Who is this that even the wind and the storms obey him? You see, that's what all the miracle stories are actually answering is who this is. Well, this is the final story. They've experienced all these miracles, and it leads up to here where Jesus himself is going to reveal who he is, okay? And so when this storm came, this is actually in the other ones, it doesn't necessarily involve the, the wind. Jesus just reveals himself, and they fall to worship. Mark's different, and he's attaching it to that question, who is this? And you're going to get to see something about the disciples, too, here. So he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. So that's like 4 to 6 a.m., really early, which means they had been struggling for quite some time. It was a dangerous, volatile situation. And, and he came to them walking on the sea. So you get the sense of, the, of he's going to rescue them, right? He came to them walking on the sea, right? So this next one is the one where it's like, yeah, your interpretation's wrong here. Uh, and he intended to pass by them. Hold on a minute. Wait. He intended to pass by them. How does that go with the interpretation of he's walking out there so that they'll learn to call to him? Let's see if they call to him. It actually said he was intended to pass by them. Let's see if he calls to him, if they call to him. Um, he intended to pass them by, but when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it is a ghost. Is that going along with our interpretation so far of them seeing Jesus and calling out to him? They didn't even recognize him. They thought it was a ghost, and they cried out in terror and fear. They weren't calling for Jesus. They were just terrified. You see how messed up that uh, interpretation is a little bit? doesn't even go along with the story. But, you know, it's easier to come to than hard, long years and communal work of understanding. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. So they didn't even, they weren't calling out to him. They thought there was a ghost, and they were terrified. Doesn't go with the story so much, does it? And it's a strange story, isn't it? He's coming to them and intends to pass them by. What in the world does that mean? I'll tell you something about gospel writers. These guys are pretty submersed in the Old Testament. You see, those were the only scriptures they had. They weren't reading the gospel of Mark yet. They were reading the Old Testament. And, and you see, here's the thing where there are no words that can describe to a monotheist Jew that Yahweh, God, very God, is walking around in the flesh. Mark knew there are symbols and there are words and there are concepts in the Old Testament that will help explain that, the inexplicable. And so what he's doing to the one that's the attentive listener is he's giving clues so that you'll look all the harder to see what it is he's revealing. And he gave some great clues here. Did you know there's only one place in the scripture that talks about God walking on the waters? I'm sure most of you do because of your mastery of the book of Job. But if not, you can laugh at that. If you don't have the book of Job completely mastered, which I certainly don't, Job 9 gives some hints to what Mark is invoking here to reveal about Jesus. So in Job 9, you can listen or follow along, it's up to you. 
uh, Bildad is, is telling Job that God rewards the good, right? And obviously Job is having a pretty tough time. Doesn't seem like much of a reward. So there's a place of tension. And then uh, Job answers him. In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? I can't petition to God that I'm right. How can a man be right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. You see, Job is starting to hint on the incomprehensibility of God. And he acknowledges God is well beyond my experiences or my interpretation of experiences, so I can't call him out. He says, wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? By the way, the Septuagint, which Mark would have been using, actually says this. You ready? It's actually almost a direct quote. Who walks on the waves of the sea as on dry ground? And if you're like, I don't know about that, Jason, that's a stretch. Just wait. Just wait, because there were two strange things, right? First of all, there's Jesus walking the water, and then the real strange one, which really becomes the point of it all, that he intended to pass them by. That's a strange part, isn't it? Watch this. Who makes the bear Orion and the so I'm going to go back to and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number? Listen closely. Were he to pass me by, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Did you hear it? You see, Job is describing the incomprehensibility of God. And actually, to the Jews in the ancient Near East, they had almost a technical term for God revealing himself in an incomprehensible way. Do you know what that technical term was? He passed you by. Do you know where they got it from? Exodus 33. When Moses is praying, God, don't send me out with these people unless you go before me. You remember this one? And, and he prays that he'll show him his glory, that he'll reveal the incomprehensibility of who he is to Moses. And God says this, and I'm not going to read it off there because actually our translation pulls out this phrase because it says it so many times. Our translator made the great, the great decision that surely they didn't mean to do that, or they did is the other option. In this case, I think they did uh, because to pass them by was a technical term to a Jew for God revealing himself in all of his incomprehensibility. So he tells Moses, Moses, I will, but you know what? You can't see me. You can't see me and live. No man can. So what I'm going to do is, when I pass by, like it says it so many times, it's really a distraction. When I pass by, I can't pass by and not hide you. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by. But when I pass by, I'm not going to be the fool of myself. I'm going to give you my backside as I'm passing by. So when I pass by, you can see me as I pass by. It's something like that. You're like, wow, that's a lot of passing bys. Yeah, well, for them, they knew what that meant. God's revealing himself. And matter of fact, in most of the places where theophanies occur, God's glory does pass by. So to the attentive listener, I want to read this again in Mark, and I want you to go, wow, look at that, would you? And then I'm going to show you something else it does 
that's even crazier. Are you ready? So let me read this story again. Here they are straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. That makes me think of the first story where the wind was against him, and they ask, who is this that even calms the wind? It's fixing to get answered, by the way. Uh, about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea, just like the incomprehensible God of Job who walks on the sea. Ready? And he intended to pass by them. What's the cipher for that? What did he actually intend to do in passing by them? I love it. You got to love you guys are interactive. He intended to reveal himself. Remember, this is an epiphany story of God revealing himself, and we thought he was going to reveal himself because he went to the mountain, but guess who God is? Jesus. Not that safe Jesus that you keep in your pocket to present for whatever you come to. That Jesus that is the incomprehensible God of the universe. You know, the Jesus we think we got to handle. Let me just tell you about Jesus. It's real simple, really. I don't know that those two ever belong in a sentence together. Jesus and simple. Because after all, we're talking about the unsearchable God of the universe in the flesh. Well, you see, they had been with Jesus, eating with him. Matter of fact, they'd been ministering with him. They had seen miracle after miracle, but he was so common to them. He was so common that he, when he came to reveal himself, they didn't even know what they were looking at. What is that? And it's funny, they're so dull. Let me rephrase that. We disciples are so dull, <laughs> that's a better way, that even when he tells them, they fail to acknowledge. Watch this. So back in, um, they thought it was a ghost, so were he to pass him by, they wouldn't even recognize him. Well, this is what happened, right? Because he is the incomprehensible God of the universe. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And we all just go along with that story, right? Take courage. It is I. What we fail to see is this. Here's what he actually says. Take courage. Ego, me. Let me translate in a way that's better than they translated. Ready? Take courage. I am. Ah, how about that? He was going to pass them by as God revealed himself in the person of Jesus and they didn't recognize him because were he to pass you by, the incomprehensible God of the universe, you wouldn't perceive him. So he told him who he was. I am. And for those of you who know who I am is, it's God telling Moses who he is who will go before him to overthrow Egypt from the burning bush. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which a monotheist Jew would have worshipped solely in no one else. And guess what? This man, Jesus, is him. I am. Do not be afraid. Well, you would have thought that we disciples would have just fell out of the place right then, right? Let's see about that. Mark doesn't give a real flattering presentation of disciples. Then he got in the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. It's funny because this goes back to the other story, right? Who is this that calms the wind? Question mark, be curious. Well, here he passed by them, and they didn't perceive him as he walked on the water, and he told them who he is. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant name. I am. And they were still amazed when he stopped the wind. You would have thought they would have understood who he was. And Mark makes a comment to make very clear that they certainly did not, for they had not gained any insight 
from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now, do you remember when I said, I'm going to connect this one to the story before and it will end up being important? And I made some comment at the first and you're like, God, Jason, come on, just get on with it. This is where it becomes important. The moral of this story was that they didn't understand the story of the feeding of the 5,000. How about that? Slow to understand. Slow to get it. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 revealed that Jesus was the good shepherd. And if they understood the good shepherd, they understood the good shepherd was God. And he was the Messiah. And he was the shepherd who would care for his people, Israel. He's the one that would draw them to himself, that would seat them in green pastures and feed them and teach them and lead them as a good shepherd would. You see, had they been perceptive, they would have already understood this is the one who the scriptures have been speaking of, God, very God, Messiah. But these things are too wonderful. They're the, they're the sublime. They're the things that are terrifying to say that God exists as a man here before us things too wonderful to even speak of. Well, this is what Mark is revealing. He's revealing the incomprehensibility of Christ and the disciples' failure to recognize that he indeed is God. You see, we are worshipers by nature. And as worshipers, as Chris Thiele said, we long to worship more than what we know. And God, the God of all the universe, the one true God, is far beyond all we could hope, imagine, or comprehend. He is the great one who created all things. And so I think what they need to do and what we need to do, because I think everyone struggles with this. Mark makes it clear that they do, because disciples, as he describes them, are you ready? I'm going to give a few choice uh, words that Mark uses. Um, are you so dull? These are the things that are said to the disciples through all of Mark. Do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Uh, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. These are the things he says to disciples throughout all of the book of Mark. Um, he calls them, uh, on two occasions, he calls them hard-hearted. And by the way, always parallel to the Pharisees who are opposed to Jesus who are hard-hearted is when he calls the disciples hard-hearted. Um, in fact, uh, there are even times when uh, he shows that they have failing faith and everything, all the afflictions that are associated with it, whether it be cowardice, doubt, and fear. This is the picture that Mark paints of disciples. Are you disciples of Jesus? Then I'm going to go ahead and take for granted I am, and I fit the mold. I hate to say that. Sometimes I wish I didn't, but if I'm really honest in the dark of my, of my closet, i got to know this, that I also am subject to failing faith, cowardice, doubt, fear, hard-heartedness, misunderstanding all the time, just like the rest of the disciples. And you might say, why would Mark do this? Well, he did it for two reasons, and by the way, these are our applications. So uh, take note of the questions I asked at first, remember? How do we experience this awe of the sublime of experiencing God, right? And how do we remove those things that are hindrances to that experience? Because after all, we do long for it. Well, first of all, the disciples stand in contrast to Jesus, our great example, the one who perfectly showed what it meant to be human, uh, who carried out the work that the Father gave him to do, and he did it by doing this, ready? He depended on God the Father continually, which was expressed in prayer most commonly. 
And he also lived a life in submission to God's will. Pierce, give me a big sigh. Ugh. Submission to God's will. Well, that might not sound exciting, but I'll tell you this. If it doesn't sound exciting, you have no idea what it is. Because if you go and search the scriptures and see what God has called us to, you will be utterly terrified. And if you look at the one whom we're said to be disciples of, who we follow, and you look what happened to him in crucifixion and rejection and him being considered the scum of the earth along with Paul and everybody else, you will be mortified at the prospect of following the will of God. That's terrifying. Right? Some of you that have wrestled honestly with that, that's a terrifying prospect. And you realize when you're measuring that one, when you consider the building a building and what it's going to take, and you look at your own life, you're like, I'll lose everything in that pursuit. Paul later promises persecution for those that would pursue godliness. These are the things we can hope for in stepping out into the great abyss of the sublime of following God, the incomprehensible God of the universe. But let me say this too. There's great promise there. It's a horror that will utterly delight you. It is that which you long to worship that you don't fully comprehend. And it's that step that enters you into the world of the sublime. The thing that you're both repelled from and, and attracted to all the more. So rightly responding to God's commission for you as a disciple stands as a pathway to the experience of the sublime of God. That's point number one. Rightly responding to God's commission for you as a disciple. To be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and to make disciples. That will enter you into the experience of the sublime of God. Well, the disciples, by contrast, it's funny. I want you to think of yourself here. They are chosen. They're given authority to carry out the work of Jesus and even do it alongside of him. And yet still have misunderstanding, hardness of heart, lack of faith, and fearfulness. And yet their path will be dependence on God and a recognition of their own propensity to failure. That's where they're going to have to start because you start with a right assessment of you, right? An experience of God automatically gives you a right assessment of you. If you step out there into the great abyss of following God's will, you're going to figure out one thing really, really quick. You know what it is? You are wholly insufficient for the call. You are needy. You are desperate. You are faltering and you are failing just like every other disciple who went before you, which, by the way, therein lies some encouragement that the ones who were faltering and slow to understand and who were failing in faith, who were hard-hearted, these are the very same ones that God decided to begin His great ministry of reconciliation of all the world. And guess what? It will be ones much like them that will continue that great work. So take courage, fellow disciples. And you should find courage there because in the end, it's not your faithfulness that will accomplish the greatness of God. It's his greatness that will accomplish it. It's his power and his might. So a posture of dependence is what's going to be needed, not a posture of self-sufficiency. So 
Number two, and this is the final point, rightly assessing yourself in all of your deficiency of understanding, hardness of heart, and little faith is the entrance fee to experiencing the sublime of God. Assess yourself rightly and come to identify yourself with the rest of the saints as those who should not think more highly of themselves than they ought, but rather to think of themselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given. Or, again, not many of us were wise by human standards, but God chose the foolish, weak, lowly, so that no one may boast before him. Or, again, the one who thinks he knows doesn't know as he ought. Identify yourself there first before you go trying to peer into things too wonderful for words. Bob Dylan said this. I had to run the gamut of quotes. So, Bob Dylan said this in a song that I thought was very profound. He spoke of all the things he knew so certainly as a young man. And he says, oh, I wish I could whine like him. I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. I was so much older when I thought I had it all figured out. I'm much younger than that now, though. Well, I want to give you some encouragement because here's the thing. The way up to ascend the abyss of the mountain of the mountain of God is the way down to humility. That's the way up. And some of our brothers and sisters from the Puritan era had a prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers, and I think it captures the sublime and the call that we've been given here in Mark and that I will give for all of us to challenge us and encourage us. It's called the Valley of Vision. I'm going to read it to you. And you can keep your eyes open, but this will also serve as our prayer to our Lord for us, for all of us as we depart. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. Like a moth to the flame, so also you be to our Lord Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.